That is certainly one of my favorite uh, Christian hymns of the faith, and love that more modernized rendition of it there. It's a reminder in the midst of the world that we live in that's full of distractions, full of things that are trying to set our sights and our hopes on the things of this world to cast our eyes to Jesus. So thankful for the worship team for setting our hearts in the right order as we begin to uh, prepare for meditating on God's Word this morning from Joshua chapter 5. That's where we're going to be this morning. So if you have a copy of God's Word, uh, turn there to Joshua chapter 5. If you need a copy this morning, we got our two polo bros here who are going to work their way up the aisles and they'll just put those Bibles in your hands if you raise your hand. They'll make sure that you get one so you can follow along with us here this morning. Well, recent weeks have taken us on a journey with the Israelites as they have crossed from their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness over the Jordan River and finally into the promised land. The path forward has looked much different than it did for their parents, didn't it? So far, we have seen a people who are eager, who are humble, who are dependent, a people who are trusting God, though God has not provided all the details about how this is going to work itself out. But here they are, now on the western side of the Jordan River, which is truly in the promised land, their feet firmly established. And the question that now remains for them is this, what's next? What now? How do we go about conquering and taking the land that the Lord has now finally delivered us into? And the answer that we get in chapter 5 might be a little bit surprising to you. So I'd encourage you, if you are turning your Bibles to Joshua chapter 5, if you would, once again, please stand as we read from Joshua chapter 5 in honor of the uh, public reading of God's Word when He speaks to us through His Word. We'll read this morning from Joshua chapter 5, and our text this morning is just going to take us down through verse 12. We read a little bit from Joshua 5, 1 last week, but just to remind you, this is what happened upon the crossing of the Jordan River and entrance into the land. Verse 1, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come up out of Egypt. Though all the people who came up had uh, been circumcised, yet all the peoples who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were circumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their place in the camp until they were healed. 
And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. And the people of Israel encamped at Gilgal. They kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on the very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. You may be seated, and let's pray now as we ask God to bless our study of his word this morning. And so, Father, that is indeed what I do want to ask now is that you would uh, show your favor, show your kindness to us as we now enter into uh, reflection and meditating and better understanding what it is that is happening in this passage. It seems in some ways bizarre, it seems unexpected, and yet, Lord, it is strategic in your heart and in your mind because you know what these people need and you know what we need this morning. And so I just pray as we go through this passage, you would help us to see ourselves and what we need to respond with this morning as your people who desire to follow you forward in faith. So would you bless our time now, bless my words and the, the, the meditation of our hearts that we would be pleasing to you in our worship and meditating on your word. Amen. Well, in recent years, uh, there's been a picture that has uh, occasionally showed up on social media that has given me a good chuckle. And perhaps you can relate to uh, the picture that's going to show up here on the screens. But uh, remembering the day when there was no such thing as a remote control, but you yourself were the remote control. Uh, I remember I was on the early side of things when TVs were like this were starting to uh, begin to fade away. I'm giving you a, a range of where I might exist in life. You can do the math on that later. But I remember the days when, uh, naturally, I was the youngest sibling in the household, but I was then expected and usually directed by my sisters how to change the channel on the TV, which, of course, didn't have a remote control to do. Obviously, we've come a long way in our lifetime with the evolution of technology. Sometimes you don't even need a remote control to change channels, to do whatever you want to with your televisions. But uh, the remote control was a pretty genius innovation uh, to the world of technology. And perhaps no button is more valued to the remote control today than the pause button. I mean, think about it. I mean, it used to be that you would use this just for movies and pre-recorded things, but now you can even do such things as pause live television. You can pause moments in time. I mean, that is power right there. The pause feature is an amazing tool utilized across many different platforms. In fact, whenever I go out on runs and I have special earbuds in my ear, if I want to pause my music or my podcast, all I have to do is just click, just a little button. And everything ceases, and then, boop, it's back on again, and it resumes. You can pause when you have interruptions. Someone calls, somebody comes to your house. You can pause moments in time. You can pause when you have to explain something. Maybe you have that person in your household who never understands what's happening in the plot line of a movie, and you have to pause it every minute to explain what's happening. But you can even pause to think more deeply about what you've seen or what you've heard. Some of you are students in school. You've listened to online lectures and you have to pause and think about what you've just heard or perhaps 
even listening to a sermon. Can't do that today. But pausing for deeper reflection and meditation on what you have just heard. And it's that final type of pause that's on display here in Joshua chapter 5. And I believe it establishes an important principle for God's people that we want to explore deeper this morning. And it is this, that moving forward in faith requires us to frequently pause and reflect on God's grace in our lives. Think about that statement for just a moment. That in order to move forward, you frequently and occasionally have to stop. And you have to slow down. And you have to pause so that you can reflect and remember God's grace at work in your life. I mean, think about it for just a moment. As we think about everything that we've studied so far in Joshua, we get to chapter 5. Everything is moving pretty full steam at this point, right? The momentum is carrying itself forward. As you remember even chapter 5, verse 1, which we read again this morning, I mean, the Israelites almost have this in the bag already. They haven't even started the battle, but they've almost got this thing won. And the momentum is being built. And just when you think that conquest is about to take place, it's as if someone grabs the remote control and says, pause. And all momentum comes to a screeching halt. And honestly, that's what I love about the book of Joshua. We've said it time and time again. We think this is a book primarily about war and conquests and bloodshed. And some of you guys in this room, you're like, man, we need to get to a battle soon. I am just itching for some bloodshed here. And I assure you, it's coming soon. But here we are, five chapters in, and no bloodshed, no war, no fighting has even taken place. While the story is always advancing, the story is also always pausing. Have you noticed that? Joshua chapter 1, where Joshua is getting the charge to about lead the people, and God says to him, you know what I want you to do, Joshua? I want you to meditate. I want you to meditate on God's law. Chapter 3, the people are getting ready to cross over the Jordan River, and you know what he says to the people? I want you to consecrate yourselves. Prepare your hearts And we get to chapter 5, and they are finally across the river. Jericho is in their sights. And you know what God tells them? Stop. Pause. And I want you to remember. And what are the things that he wants them to remember? Well, I think when we look at this story here, we see that there are two important reminders of God's grace towards his, his people. And we see it in two different observances, two different practices. And the first observance we see in verses 2 through 9, which is that practice of circumcision, of circumcision, which we see is really a call for the people to pause and remember their identity as God's people. Pause and remember their identity as God's people. This is, ironically enough, the first command given in the promised land. Circumcise the sons of Israel. 
Circumcision obviously was this uh, medical surgical procedure performed exclusively on the males amongst the Israelites. And it's interesting here because from a military perspective, this looks like a poor decision. What did we just see about the Canaanites in the land? They're reeling. They're anxious. They're shaking in their boots. And what does God have the Israelites do upon entering into the land? He calls for them to do a surgical procedure that is going to put them out of commission for the next three days. Makes no logical sense. Makes no military strategy sense. But here is where we must remember that God is not concerned with the preparation of their weapons. God is not concerned with the preparation of their military strategy. God is concerned about the preparation of their hearts. We've said it before, this war for the promised land does not depend on military proficiency, but rather their ability to trust what God says. So why circumcision? Why the significance of this procedure? This is actually a practice that began all the way back in Genesis 17 for God's people, a sign that he gave to Abraham, the father of the nation, to remind him of faith that unites him to the promises that God had given to him through the covenant. And if you remember, that covenant that he made with Abraham included the promise of offspring, the promise of blessing to the rest of the world. And what was the third promise? The promise of a land, of a place reserved for him and his people. It was a sign that closely connected God's promises to his chosen people. And it's so timely that God is bringing it back since it is so closely associated with his chosen land, which he has now delivered them into. But that probably raises a question in your mind. You may have thought about it already, because the language of it here reveals something. If circumcision is being brought back, where has it been? Where has it been for all these years? I was listening to a, a story uh, a few weeks ago about the history of the popular sport that a lot of young people play today called Spikeball. Have you ever seen Spikeball? It's this nice little round net that sits close to the ground like a trampoline, small little ball, two on two. Really, really creative game that has really exploded in the last 10 years. But here's the thing that most people don't know. Spikeball didn't begin in the last 10 years. It actually was invented in 1989, and over the years, it just didn't really gain a lot of traction, and it fell away. Spikeball is actually a revived game, something that came back into style, into popularity, only within the last 10 to 15 years. So when we think about circumcision, the question is, where has it gone, and why is God reviving it? Why is he bringing it back now? And I think we get a little glimpse of that there in verses 4 to 7 that we read a little bit ago. 
right? This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they came out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out of the land had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. So all of those who had been born who were part of this new generation had been raised up had not yet been circumcised. And the question is, why? Was this a further act of rebellion on the part of God's people? It's certainly possible, but the scriptures never really speak of it that way. I think actually what we see in these verses is something different. For the, verse 6, for the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation of the men of war who came out of Egypt perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. I think what is more likely the reason why it disappeared for these past 40 years was that God called for the people to temporarily withhold this practice as a sign of his judgment on the unbelieving generation. Because that generation did not trust him. They did not receive him by faith. And so what did God do? Verse 7, he raised up a new generation in their place, marking a new generation who will inherit the land by faith rather than falling away in unbelief. So what does all this mean? What is the significance of here? By reintroducing the covenant sign of circumcision, God is staking his claim on his people again. Here we have to recognize a very important point, one that can escape us if we are too quick to read past what is here in this passage. Joshua is setting up a contrast for you today between two generations. And do you see it? The first generation had all the external markings of being God's people, but they were unbelieving. And over here, you have a second generation who had not yet received these external markings, and yet their heart had been proven to be faithful, to trusting him. Here's the point. You can have all the marks, the external marks of a follower of God, and yet still lack the true heart to follow him by faith. You can have all the signs of connection to God, yet still be distant from him. Once again, Dale Ralph Davis says it so well. He says, you may hold membership among God's flock, but have no relationship with the shepherd. Church, you may have all the marks of a genuine follower of the Lord. You may have been baptized. You may have come to church, been a member here, been in heavily involved in service, attended Bible studies, you name it. But if your relationship is all about the external markings, then you lack the most significant thing that marks a follower of God, which is faith. Because it is faith, ultimately, that identifies you with God. It always has, and it always will. And that was true of Abraham when it even began. But notice that this section is not just about what God is giving to the Israelites. It's also about what God is taking away. Did you notice that in verses 8 to 9? Notice that what he does here is he removes the reproach of Egypt. 
It was rolled away, this, this shame, this embarrassment, this dishonoring, this, this mockery that came from their rebellion against him after they came out of Egypt. But notice that the, the reproach specifically identifies the reproach of Egypt. That's kind of interesting because what, in what sense would this shame be associated with Egypt? Well, what was the whole point of the exodus? It was to take the Israelites out of Egypt and into their new home, wasn't it? Did that happen? It didn't. It didn't. In fact, the Israelites became a wandering, homeless community for 40 years. Now, if you're an Egyptian, it's kind of hard not to laugh about that a little bit, isn't it? To be a little smug to yourselves. To think, huh, that's interesting. The God who delivered them from us somehow isn't able to deliver them into the land. I can imagine they were the punchline of all kinds of jokes that the Egyptians would have come up with back in the day. I don't know what those would have looked like, but it maybe would have looked like something like this. Here's a quote. Here's a joke for you. Why couldn't the Israelites make it to the promised land? You say, why? Why? They didn't know Yahweh. Ha, get it? Yahweh, the way, yep. See, I imagine the Egyptians being really bad joke tellers, so that's an example of what it probably would have looked like, right? But think about all this, the mockery and the shame of the people and how that reflected of their God. He was able to deliver them from Egypt, but wasn't able to deliver them into the land. For 40 years, that first generation was a picture of the shame that comes from sin and unbelief. But this day served as a sign that things had changed. Their shame was removed. It was rolled away. In fact, the text says that's why the place was called Gilgal. We talked about that a little bit last week. This adds a little bit more dimension to that word Gilgal means circle or to roll, right? So there's some significance here that this is the place where God rolled away the reproach that was upon them. That shame of their past failures was gone. This was the dawning of a new day for Israel's history as a nation. And it was a marvelous one. But circumcision was not the only grace gift that they were pausing to remember that day. Look at verses 10 and 12 here for just a moment. Uh, This is where we see them observing Passover, where they pause to remember that God provides for his people. If circumcision was about pausing or remembering their identity as God's people, Passover was reminding them of God's provision for them. Uh, Here they pause in verses uh, 10 and they uh, institute or they reobserve here the the Passover feast. This is something that they did continue to do throughout the wilderness, but it's not heavily emphasized. But this was a feast, as we know, that was instituted in Egypt at the time of the Exodus on the eve of the final plague. You remember in Exodus chapter 2, they were given a a lamb, a lamb that they were to sacrifice, the blood who uh, would be painted over their doorposts that the, the spirit of the Lord would pass over them. They would be delivered. They would not be punished and judged. And while there were many feasts and celebrations amongst the Israelites, this one was perhaps the most significant and the most special to them. Uh, this was their Christmas, if you will. Uh, Because it showcased their deliverance from Egypt. 
eating and remembering the lamb whose blood had saved them uh, and rescued them from the land, eating in a position uh, and a posture of readiness to leave the land because of their bondage. In other words, this feast, this meal was a living picture of their deliverance and a reminder that God was faithful to do what he promised, which was to bring them into this land. But then notice in verses 11 and 12, this, it takes an interesting turn here. Not only did God provide deliverance for his people, which is what the Passover feast reminded them of, but he also provided the basic means for them to survive. Something amazing happened the day after they observed the feast. They went from eating the manna of the wilderness to, the text says, eating the produce of the land. In fact, it emphasizes that multiple times. They went from eating this bread from heaven to eating now the produce, everything that came out of the land of Canaan. You may recall that the manna was this miraculous bread from heaven that was described as, as wafers tasting a bit like honey, which sounds delicious, but I can imagine after 40 years gets tiresome. And yet, every single day, it was a reminder to them that God was providing. God was delivering. God was doing what he needed to sustain and bring his people through. It was a, a place filler and a foretaste, a shadow of what was one day to come when they entered into the, the land. And now that they had indeed entered, notice it says the day that they ate of the produce of the land, what happened? The manna ceased. It was no more because it was no longer needed. The full sustenance of what God had promised them had now been given into their hands. They had full access to the food of the land, a continuation of the truth that God provides for his people. And so here we have these two ancient practices renewed that day on the western banks of the Jordan River. By pausing and observing, these people are now ready to march forward. They are ready, in essence, to hear God's marching orders and to begin with the conquest of the land. And so as we look at these 12 short but simple verses this morning, what would the Lord have for us to take away from this? Here's a couple of points that I think are important for us to reflect on this morning. The first of which is this. We must be quick to slow down. You heard that correctly. We must be quick. We must be fast to slow down. Similar to what we see at the beginning of the story, where we see all this fast-paced momentum moving forward, and then everything comes to a screeching halt. Everything stops, and the idea is that we as a people would slow down with the purpose of intentionally seeking time of deep reflection. I'm talking about the ability to pause and reflect in this fast-paced world. I mean, how often do you hear people describe their lives this way? In fact, if we're honest, how many of you this week have described your own life this way? Uh, have you heard the words come out of your mouth? When people ask you, oh, how are things going? And you say, life's just really busy. Things are just really chaotic. It's crazy. It's fast-paced. It's full. I have hardly any time to think to myself. 
in many ways, that type of wording, that type of phraseology, response, has become an acceptable way to live. And even at times, even in Christian circles, it gets misinterpreted as righteousness, as holiness, as if the busy you are, busier you are, the holier you are. And my hope today is that you would give consideration to the pace and the routine of your daily life, to be proactive rather than reactionary to control your schedule rather than your schedule controlling you. The hope would be that you would be able to consider building specific times of deep meditation and reflection into your life. In fact, that's important for the church to do. That's why we do things like the, the ordinances, like baptism, or when we do communion together. Those are intentional times of pausing and reflecting on God's grace that he has shown and demonstrated in our lives. But it's important for you to consider what this looks like for your own lives. Not just removing the busyness of life, but intentionally filling it with truth that will care and nurture your soul. Perhaps you need to consider building in some weekly time for the sake of you or your family. A day or a certain set of hours where you take time as a family to remove yourself from the distractions of the world. Take time to read and to meditate, to pray, to sing, whatever it may be. But also a call for you to proactively prepare your heart each day, right? After all, how are we going to move forward in faith? How are we going to be a testimony to the world if we're not daily preparing our hearts? In fact, I think we see so much of how preparation is important for what the people were even doing here in their meditation because by remembering God's grace and provision, think about how you arm yourself each day with a heart of gratitude that is able to fight grumbling and complaining because you have intentionally set your mind that day to remember God's grace in all the ways that he has provided for you more than you deserve. By reflecting on your identity as a child of God who has been adopted into his family, you are prepared to daily battle thoughts of insecurity or loneliness or anxiety, you name it. Why? Because you have taken the time to pause and reflect and think and remember the grace that has been given to you by being a child of God. And so you must be quick to think about ways that you can slow down. The call, again, throughout this book has not been to focus on preparation of weapons, but preparation of hearts. They are called to consecrate themselves. In other words, think about this, church. Obedience to God does not happen on accident. These people aren't just going to stumble into obedience. That's why God has spent so much time calling for them to prepare their hearts. We cannot expect to follow God in the hard things if we are not first in the right mindsets. If Israel wanted to defeat Jericho, they had to remember God's grace. If you want to defeat and conquer sin in your life, then you must do likewise. So let us as Christians be a people known for slowing down in this fast-paced world. And secondly, as followers of God, we need to be reminded this morning that we have been given a brand new identity. This is kind of that focus in verses 2 through 9 there. It showed how God was willing to be identified with his people. 
But what does that mean for you? Obviously, you're not an Israelite. God is not calling you today to be circumcised in the same way that the Israelites were. And as we talked about, this goes beyond just any mere externals, things like membership or baptism. So what is it that we understand identifies us as the people of God? I think this points to the bigger picture of the Bible because what God really cares about is what the Bible calls circumcision of the heart. This is something that Moses alluded to in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, saying that if the people are going to follow me, they have to have hearts that have been circumcised, hearts that have been changed. In fact, the place that makes this very clear for us as New Testament believers comes in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, where Paul writes this, in him, that's Jesus, and when the Bible says in him, that's language for our faith that unites us to Jesus. In him... Also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In other words, it's not physical, it's not external. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Listen to what he says, how he describes it here in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, that's a a dry baptism, baptism of immersing yourself by faith in Christ, in which you also were raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your transgressions, or your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. What is he talking about there? He's understanding, he's unpacking this idea of what that circumcision of the heart looks like. Translation, circumcision of the heart is saving faith. It's what happens when your life is united to Jesus, when you put your trust, your hope, everything in his death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins. It makes you new. It transforms you. Your heart, your soul, your mind, everything is made new because of that union. God recreates you and gives you a new heart. Galatians 2.20 says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is what makes us new. This is what marks our new identity as the people of God and shows that we belong to him. So if you are a true follower of God, he has chosen you. He has marked you. He has changed your heart. And as such, he is also, in the same light with the Israelites, he has rolled away the reproach, the shame, everything that comes with your former identity of who you once were, that has been removed. God no no longer sees it. He no longer remembers it. What he sees now is your new identity in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Translation, the old has been rolled away. The new has come. You see, church, when God recreates you, when he gives you a new identity, he doesn't just give you a new start. He makes you a new person, a new creation. We have been given an identity as God's people that cannot be taken away. Thirdly, God has already provided for our greatest need At the heart of the Passover meal was what? The Passover lamb. An animal that was sacrificed, whose blood was spilt so that the people would be covered from their judgment uh, of God so that it would not uh, show itself on them. 
And here we are reminded on this side of the cross, the truth that John the Baptist testified to in John chapter 1, verse 29, where he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, Jesus is that Passover lamb. In fact, he laid down his life during the celebration of the Passover so that he would identify himself as that new Passover lamb, setting us free, not from the bondage of a foreign land, but from the bondage of our sin and shame and judgment. Jesus, our Passover lamb, is a reminder that God has rescued us in the same way the Passover reminded the Israelites that God had delivered them. It is a reminder for you here today that your greatest need is not often what you think it is. Your greatest need is not your job. Your greatest need is not that retirement account that you're trying to build up. Your greatest need, student, is not your grades or your acceptance by your peers. Your greatest need is not marriage or relationships. Your greatest need is to be forgiven of your sin. Translation, your greatest need is Christ. And God has indeed provided for your greatest need, which means that he is also gracious to provide for your lesser needs. This is the argument we've been making for weeks in here, that God, if he has given us the greatest thing in Christ Jesus, will he not give us all other things? And we see this especially identified in that transition from the provision by manna to the provision by the land, because if you really actually look at it, it feels a little bit like a step backwards. Because you go from God providing by extraordinary supernatural means to now providing by ordinary And simple means. And yet, it's all still God's provision, isn't it? It reminds us that God is just as pleased to provide in the ordinary ways as he is in the extraordinary. We've talked about Romans 8.32. It's on your cover verse this morning for your worship folder, right? That God who did not spare his own son for you, how will he not give you what else you need? Jesus reminds us in Matthew 6, why are you anxious about food, drink, shelter, clothing, right? You are far more valuable than the birds of the air or the lilies of the field. And so it's a call for us to be mindful each and every day of God's gracious provision to you. The things that we take so easily for granted, food, clothing, shelter, our health, whatever it may be. And while these needs are certainly lesser than our need for Christ, God is no less gracious to provide those things for us. Such provisions, though seemingly ordinary, are no less miraculous. We must be quick to see God in the mundane matters of life just as much as we are quick to see God in the major events. And once again, I think Dale Ralph Davis has such a great quote about this. He says, So we must beware of thinking that God is only in the earthquake, wind, and fire. Of thinking that manna but not grain is God's food. Most of God's gifts to his people are not dazzling or gaudy, but wrapped in simple brown paper. Quiet provisions of safety on the highway, health for children, picking up a paycheck, supper with the family, all in an ordinary day's work for our great God. 
God is gracious to provide for our greatest need, you better believe that he delights to provide in our lesser needs. And finally this morning, we must remember that God's faithfulness is greater than we even realize. In verse 10, we learn that these people observed the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. Isn't it interesting that their entrance into the promised land coincided with their deliverance from Egypt? We learn in Exodus 12, 6 that this is the very day that the Passover lamb was sacrificed. And so here we are, 42 years roughly removed from each other. The event that marked their deliverance and now the event that showcases their deliverance into the land. Bookending 40 years of deliverance in the making as a reminder that God is faithful to do what he has promised. And that is good because his glory is attached to his faithfulness. When God was about to destroy the Israelites because of their rebellion and Moses was interceding for them, Moses' concern in that was that God's glory would be at stake by removing the Israelites. Moses knew that God would receive far more glory if he delivered the people into the land than if he would remove them and start over fresh. And God was faithful to that. And here we are reminded, this side of the cross, that what God starts, God finishes. That as we learned in Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Church, if you have been redeemed by God, if you have been saved by him, if you were walking by faith, your deliverance is not yet complete God is still bringing it to completion one day when you will be with him in his forever home. And you better believe that he is faithful and he will do exactly what he has accomplished. Great is the faithfulness of our God who completes his work to deliver. Let's pray. Father, we do just praise you now. You are a God who is faithful and we praise you for that faithfulness today. Thank you for the way that you have showcased your grace to us, and I pray that we would be a people who in the midst of this busy, chaotic, sin-cursed world that we live in, that we would be a people who are quick to pause and reflect and to remember, Lord, all the ways that you have been gracious to choose us, to identify with us, and to provide for us. Lord, great is your faithfulness, and what a delight it is to be your people. We praise you. For your goodness to us today, in Jesus' name, amen.